After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast along with J.J. Cooper. I'm John Manuel. J.J. showing me my, my Hickory Daily Record pencil. You know I've been here a long time. I still have my 16-year-old pencil from the Hickory Daily Record. Uh, Long time ago that I no, worked no, there. No, I'll put it this way. No one's stealing that pencil without, uh, you know. No, it just lies around in here, and nobody ever takes my Hickey Daily Record pen- pencil or my son's Poe Magnet Montessori pencils either. But uh, we'll talk about all that and more in today's podcast. We're recording this on the off day after Game 2 of the World Series. Giants lead 2 nothing. If you listen to this podcast, you probably already know that. I'm guessing that you probably might be aware. We will talk. They're playing uh, the World Series? We're taking your questions. We will talk about... Uh, Arizona Fall League, some later in the podcast with an interview I recorded yesterday with Kyle Simon of the Phillies organization. Good stuff in there from Kyle about playing in the Fall League, about the University of Arizona, his alma mater, winning a national title the year after he left, and uh, being Babe Ruff's roommate in AA Reading. So good stuff in that part of the podcast. Hope you enjoy the interviews. And uh, But, J.J., uh, obviously uh, the postseason is winding down. We've got Frank and Storm coming this weekend. Next, um, early next week, especially. Early next week, okay. If you're in the Northeast, well, I it's affecting it's affecting Jupiter now. Well, the hurricane, yeah. Hurricane Sandy, is affecting Jupiter and the Rollwood Bat, uh, the tournament down there, the big showcase. So it, it's already having an effect on the on the baseball world. But at this, uh, we're, since we're on this down day of the postseason, um, what's been your favorite moment or moments of the 2012 postseason? It's been a pretty eventful. An entertaining month of October in baseball. I got two. We were talking. Uh, one is is watching Delmon Young attempt to play left field is is entertaining. That's entertaining slash cringeworthy. Yes. It's it's like a bad train wreck. Especially when you have the the dichotomy of him versus Gregor Blanco, who Gregor Blanco seems to catch anything within a uh, five county radius of left field. But uh, um, but more seriously, I I've been just impressed with. This has been, to me, what, when you say, what will I remember about this postseason more than anything, something may change. I mean, we don't know that, you know, there may be a moment left in this. I mean, pop, obviously we're going to remember Kung Fu Panda hitting three home runs in a game. Like, you know, we, taking Justin Verlander deep twice in the same game as part of a three-home run game. That will stick in the mind. But, but I'd say more than anything, it's just how getting down, you know, to must-win games, it's not really been that big of a problem in this right. postseason this year. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's one lasting image. It seemed like the most lasting image of the postseason in terms of a play was the Ibanez pinch-hit home run for A-Rod because it was such a big deal at the time, A-Rod getting pinch-hit for. Then the other one is kind of the somewhat Tim Crumry-like fl- flopping of Derek Jeter's left angle, ankle. I mean, they're the Yankees, but, that's a big deal, but that – that series in the big picture is right. not I, I, an I important think, series. I think what the Cardinals did to the Nationals 
and then what the Giants did to the Reds, and then what the Giants did to the Cardinals. Those are that, more memorable. The National well, League postseason has been more memorable to me than the American League. Because I think one of the key things is at least how I go through these things is I end up remembering a lot more about what happened to the teams who made the World Series. Right, no if doubt. If the two teams involved didn't make the World Series, I don't remember as much about it. I mean, that I said, remember Jeter more. and A-Rod are bigger no, they, than they, the average player. They Absolutely, absolutely. And, like, uh, you know, okay, we're not gonna remember. We're not going to remember Coco Crisp's uh, – you know, walk-off single against, uh, or, uh, you know, game-tying single and then scoring the run for the A's. That's going to be forgotten. I guess I actually had the game-winning single and Seth Smith scored. Anyway. Right, but yeah. It, See, but, I, can't, I already can't remember it. But but I do think, though, that Pablo Sandoval's three-home run game, because That's, that yep. is, I, I remember Reggie. I mean, that was probably, I mean, you're talking about first baseball memories I have yep. for the same age. I was trying to tell my son la- last night, or the day after, because he didn't stay up to watch that, he saw the first home run. I think he was reading in the second home run. But when I told him in the morning that he, there was a third home run, he easily said, like Albert Pujols last year. And I said, well, that's what's crazy is that you're eight, and, 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 you, and you think it's just common for someone to hit three home runs. Since you've been paying attention, it happens every year. And no, it's happened five times ever, and only two other people with Ruth and Jackson, and now it just happened to happen in each of the last two seasons with Pujols and, and St. Naval, but... Pablo, the home run that Sandoval hit against the Reds, where he just jacked one, and then the home run in Game 7 by Brandon Belt uh, off Jason Mott, that sticks in my head as well. Um, flashes like that. But it's been, an, it's been a very entertaining postseason, J.J. We've got a lot of po- uh, Twitter questions on our uh, – we thought we'd also talk about today. But we did want to also talk in this podcast a little bit about the ongoing controversy in Pittsburgh, a team that is nowhere near the postseason. Um, that threatened were, the postseason. And then they, and then they well, tailed off. Two years off. in a row. Two and years in a row. To, to say tailed off doesn't really do it justice, because tailing off is like, oh, you fell short. To Ta- go from, yeah. well, I mean, I think we said on a podcast at the end of July, well, at least the pi- at, at least they're not going to have to worry about the streak, because there's no way you go from this to, losing, to a losing record, and we were wrong. We were wrong, and, you know... I think that Dan Kovacevic, our former uh, correspondent, now the columnist of the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, he was all in. Remember he had that column he wrote like in June or July where he like, this is the year. The Pirates have changed. Things are better. And then when that team went into that tailspin. Uh, and and it, Dan was like, I don't want to speak for him, but having read his stuff. Right. At the trade deadline when they, as he saw it, and with some truth, didn't really do much. And a big move was Travis Snyder. Right. You know, which is basically, here, you can have our, you know, our problem. You can try to see if you can fix them. That, that was... That was their big move. That's not a big move. You know, <laughs> right. Obviously. Um, and, and, again, I think you can debate that point. Like, the Pirates, you can argue in some ways, were right in thinking. We're not. We're not really a playoff team. We've played over our head, and... One move's not going to change us into a playoff team. That, if they had made that assessment, that would be some accuracy to that assessment. But that's not how they played it at the time. Though. They certainly no, didn't act like they saw the collapse coming, and neither did Dan. And then when the collapse came, he took it pretty hard, <laughs> you know. And I think he took it hard because he felt like he'd been duped and because their fans were taking it hard because they felt duped. I think he felt like, when I'm reading what he wrote, he was kind of writing almost in a way as a fan and as someone 
who is try was trying to reflect the Pittsburgh sports fans' feelings toward that team, which and, I think is a fair role for a columnist to play. And, and so there was some anger in there. And with, I guess is what I'm saying. And That's with where I'm that, going. The, the the one of the biggest problems the Pirates have is that they have, understandably, the Pirates have no. Reservoir, reservoir of goodwill. They have no equity with their fans. And they should Nor should they, exactly. They shouldn't. If you don't win for 20 years, you do not have this spare reserve of trust us, we know, you know what we're doing. And they have it worse in that they're doing that in the same town where the more popular team has that reservoir. If the Steelers came out and said, you know, we're not going to wear shoulder pads anymore. We think we're better off without them. Fans would at least go, well, they do seem like they know what they're doing. Right, exactly. And the Pirates don't have that, and that leads into that's not, where... Not just that, also, not even just the Pirates, but then there, then there's the the Penguins, yes. the hockey team, well, obviously not playing right now. That's the big But they that. do have, but, but still, yeah. though, that's a team, that's a franchise that has had two of the great players in hockey history in Lemieux Absolutely. and now Crosby, two guys who are faces of the sport, uh, got a new st- uh, arena. They've won Stanley Cups 20 years ago. They've won Stanley Cups recently, or won Stanley Cup recently. So I think they won a Stanley Cup. Either way, they're competitive. They're good. The point is, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know my NHL Stanley Cup winners. I apologize. Well, don't worry right now. There's not going to be one for 2013. Right, it looks right. like, so. I'm sorry, Jim Schoner. But the point is, they're the. you could argue in some ways they're the number three franchise in town, in a three-franchise town. And this is the backdrop uh, of what – can only be described as a fascinating story. Because it is fascinating. So what, if you have somehow missed this, we'll give you the very short synopsis of it, which is that the Pirates' player development side has very much bought in that they want to develop this team, this unified team, and the way to build that. There was an email that was leaked. that yeah, a memo. A memo that was not supposed to be brought out publicly, but where Kyle Stark talked about that they wanted to be like hippies and hell's angels and and all these different things all wrapped into one. With a lot of motivational talk by their farm director Kyle Stark that was directed toward their coaches and like how do we want to handle our players in the second half of the season? What are we trying to get out of these players? And there was team building, it's bonding, but he used some catchphrases. One of them, of course, was "Hoka Hey." That's the one. It's that a good time stuck. to die, uh, which I believe is the uh, Sioux, uh, or I guess now they're known as the Lakota tribe. Uh, rallying cry for Crazy Horse in the 19th century. And then, with that, he also, Dan reported about how they did done Navy SEAL-type type training. training last year, which involved carrying telephone poles and you know running on the beach and things like that. Non-traditional exercises and non-traditional baseball training. We'll put, that's an easy way to put Some it. Some hand-to-hand combat training and things like that. And then, he's followed that up with, hey, they did that again this year, and then he followed that up further, and by the way, after the Navy SEAL training, they did this thing they called Hell Week, which is kind of taken from Navy SEAL training, where you deal with sleep deprivation, and, right. you know, so they were woken up, the prospects in their instructions, at were, night, and yeah. taken out to go run for a couple of hours, and then, you know, they got up early again, so they were dealing with sleep deprivation. They and played a game, played a game that day. Right. And did also some other non-traditional things, like running through sand pits, and slight, you know, all kind of things. And with that, one of their prospects, Gregory Polanco, who, you know, actually, if if there's a Gregory Polanco fan club, I'm, you know, I, I want to be near the top That's of right. that list. Cause That's I'm right. A, You're I'm all a, in. I'm all in on Gregory Polanco. But 
there was an injury, not a major injury. He's back playing. He's going to play winter ball. But there was an, an aggravation of an earlier injury. An aggravation of an earlier injury he suffered, which, again, just fed into the whole questions of this. And really, I do think – I I think what it comes down to here is is that what we talked about earlier, the Pirates – the difficult thing for the Pirates, if this was – if the San Francisco Giants were doing this or the St. Louis Cardinals were doing this, right, it would be viewed as – Look at this trailblazing organization who does things differently, and they work. Let's face it, the Cardinals are an organization. That's a great counterpoint team to bring up because the Cardinals are uh, a team that does have equity, not just with their fans, but in the industry. Right. And in the mid part of the last decade, they brought in Jeff Luno, and even though they had Tony La Russa, and even though they had Walt Jockney the general manager, Jeff Luno caught a lot of heat for doing Lots. things that in the industry and out of it for doing things that were not typical, that were not the industry norm. It wasn't just a money ball approach. He was just completely – there's no organization that really did money ball like the Cardinals. Not even the A's did money ball like the Cardinals. To the point that when ownership didn't like the way scouting and player development had been working with uh, the general manager and that there was this divide in the, indus- in the organization, they sided with Luno, not – Jockety, the right. guy who had you know, won a World Series there in 2006, built the organization, been the guy who really brought in Tony La Russa. They sided with Luno and were validated with the team that won the World Series last year and that won a division series this year. So, and, again, and with a lot of homegrown players. So Jeff Luno, though, had all that equity in an organization that had that equity. He didn't have the equity. The organization had it. But when that organization did things differently, they caught some flack and some ridicule. Now, most of it was directed at Luno. And he's kind of had the last laugh now, obviously, going on to Houston. But in, So Pittsburgh has a lot less. So this story and this rev, these revelations, J.J., have kind of made them the, the laughing stock uh, of and the industry. And I think with good reason, because if you're going to – what Dayan pointed out, and he's pointed out very well, is that when you look at this team, the, the, young, the good young players on this big league roster – were brought in by the previous administration, Dave Littlefield, as general manager. There's not really a lot of contributors from the Neil Huntington era, now, and they've been around since 2008. Now, I'll say with that, I, you know, we've had this debate in the office. I do think, I think because if you look at the top end of their, of their farm system, it is significantly better. I think their top ten is going to be one of the best top tens in the game. Right. When we, when we, when we have them all done, we're working on the handbook now, uh, next week's podcast, we'll talk about some American League East top tens. We just put that issue to bed. But if you're looking at that, uh, top just top ten prospects, the Pirates' top ten is loaded. Right. And there's a mix there, really, of two things. One, of really expensive players who you can, if you want to be a critic, you can say, okay, yes, Garrett Cole's a good prospect. But they spent $8 million on They spent $8 on million. Dollars. Jameson Tyone's a good prospect. They spent a ton of money on him. Mixed in with... Where they, you know, where if you want to give them some development success, mixed in with Alan Hansen's and Gregory Polanco's, who are Latin players who are very legit prospects who didn't cost them an arm and a leg to sign. Right. But if you want to criticize them, there's a very fair criticism, which is they spend a whole lot of money on a whole lot of guys who aren't very good prospects at all either. Absolutely true. And Especially, and I think the, you know, really, the the draft as a touchstone for them was the 2009 draft. Um, where they spent a ton of money. And the thing is, they get ridicule in the industry. They've always got, been 
in the industry, especially when you do, we talked about draft report cards last podcast, other teams, when it comes to the drafts prior to this new CBA, were very critical of the way the Pirates spent in the old CBA because Frank Coonley, the team president, had been the guy who'd been the watchdog and the, really the, he'd been the junkyard dog almost for Bud Selig, the guy who went after teams when they spent too much in the draft. And then he... And then he... The Pirates spent more than anyone else in the draft. I mean, like as Jim said... Uh, there's no team that's ever spent $13 million on two players in the draft like the Pirates did. And you, you spent $13 million on one with Steven Strasburg um, with the, with the right. Nationals, but that's that's that was a special case. And the, Pir- and the Pirates haven't gotten that kind of money. They haven't gotten that kind of bang for their buck with Cole and Bell yet the way that the Nationals did almost instantly with Strasburg. Right, but I do think like if the reason they've been criticized in the industry has not been the Josh Bells or Garrett Coles. It's been the Zach von Rosenbergs, and the, it's been the million-dollar guys to me much more than the. That's a. I will say that it's five million dollars for a second rounder is not something that the rest of the industry was too thrilled about. I'm not saying, but I that, that, again that, though, but but Josh Bell, they, they, he they may have may, been seen as worth it, but that's five million dollars for a second round pick. That was not a. That right, was not but, a. But see, but, but from a precedence, I know what you're saying. Like from the talent, maybe it was worth it. Right. But from to a me, precedent I, standpoint. The rest of the industry frown on that pretty hard. I, I and agree with that, fair. but if I'm the Pirates, I don't care if the rest of the industry frowns on it from that standpoint, if it makes me a winner. Sure, but I think it also think, it points up the hypocrisy of Frank Coonley. That, right, that's where but, I'm going. But what I'm saying, though, is that, that if I'm the Pirates, yes, okay, it's Frank Coonley's previous job was to do this, which was stupid. Right, and <laughs> right. Just because in his previous job, the guy who signed his check said, you have to do this really dumb thing, right. doesn't mean that now that he's getting his check signed by someone else, he right. needs to continue doing the dumb that thing. That said, though, a lot of people thought that Zach Ron, Von Rosenberg was worth a million-dollar bonus and that Colton Kane was worth a million-dollar bonus. I don't think anybody thought that Josh Bell – I'm not trying to continue yeah. that argument, but that, I, that's, where I, that's kind of where I'm going. But that, that 09 draft, Tony Sanchez – Brooks Pounders, Evan Chambers, these kind of guys. You know, Vic Black, their supplemental first rounder, he has a chance. Uh, but that was a bad draft. There's no other way to around it. That was a bad draft. They're not going to get value out of that draft. And 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 their you know their, their farm system is thinner on talent at the top levels. Even though they did, they've had good teams the last two years at Double A AA and Triple A. They won the Easter League in 2010. They had the best record, I'm pretty sure, in the International League in 2011. But Jeff Locke and Justin Wilson and, and Rudy did, Owens, those guys aren't going to change their franchise. Right. They, they did trade away uh, Robbie. They got Wandy Rodriguez, which is another move I won't say they, they made at the deadline. They brought in Wandy. They traded away Robbie Grossman. Good one, yep. Um, I need to remember that. But, but yeah, it's not. there's not a whole lot of guys, of impact guys, at the upper levels besides Garrett Cole. Their, their guys are mostly still a, a year plus away. Yeah, the guy say. who was there, I mean, Tyone reached double A at the end of the year. Cole did as well and, and pitched in the triple A playoffs. And then Starling Marte was the impactful guy at the top, and that's an international signing. And they have made, I think we agree between talking about Polanco, Marte, uh, Alan Hansen, significant progress. But it's if there's a front office, I mean, there were the, there, there's been this week the uh, Kenny Williams finally promoted to president of the White Sox, and Rick Hahn, Hahn becoming general manager for the uh, White Sox. There's been a lot of rumors about the Marlins this off season and possible moves there. But it seems like with firing Ozzie Guillen, that's the direction the Marlins are going to go in as opposed to a front office shakeup. But this is the one to watch, I think, is that Bob Nutting says that he's evaluating. But I think Dan, again, has kept on doing these stories in part because he wants to see some accountability from uh, his standpoint. I don't think he's seeing any because he, 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 it's almost like he's going to keep writing these 
until but, somebody's head rolls. But the thing about this is that I, I think this is a key point. The pirates, again, in the in the industry, the pirates are looked at with this, and and there are a lot of people in the industry who, I mean, I know I've talked to some people who say, yep. oh, yeah, there are people laughing about this. There's some SMH and, going on up there. You know, a lot of people shaking their heads. And And there's a lot of people saying, and again, part of this comes back to that whole, if you don't have that reservoir of credibility, right? The guys, some of the guys who are implementing these decisions, were already considered by especially a lot of the old guard of baseball as controversial hires because it's like, okay, so Kyle Stark is you know running their farm system. What's his baseball background? Right, and it's pretty thin. It's, it's thin. That's right. That he's he's part of the new wave of guys. You know, Jeff Lunau's baseball background. Is pretty thin, right? Compared to uh, especially when he started, right? Now it's right, a bit but thicker. But, but I, what I'm saying though is, is, especially though these guys' baseball background, there are a lot of people in the game. You know, you can disagree or agree with this, but a lot of people in the game who's like, if you didn't play the game, oh yeah, you do not understand parts of the game. When the you parts do, that you'll never get, and when you do something like this, that criticism's going to rise up a lot louder because it's like. You, if you think that carrying telephone poles on the beach is going to help you <laughs> at instructs, there are a lot of people out there in the industry who are like, you probably, you know, I've, I've seen your teams play. You probably need to work more on turning the six four three. Correct, and that's where Dan was coming from because there was no talent at the upper levels that could help the Pirates this year down the stretch, and the guys who did come up uh, performed uh, skilled tasks poorly, base running fielding, backing up plays, things that are learned that are part of player development were not done well. And and again, what it comes back to, though, is, is that it's going to take – and the Pirates organization believes in this, though. This right. is not – They do. Absolutely, they do. This is not one person having an idea and kind of pushing it through right. to the uh, against the opposition of everyone else in the organization. That's an important point. That's an important point here because this is not something where, where Neil Huntington's going to wake up tomorrow and go, "What are we doing?" Well, there, you know, one other thing about their farm system, I don't know if you remember the 2010 draft was the one where they uh, had Jamison Tyone, Stetson Alley, who's been in the news this year That's for not good. them giving up on Stetson Alley as a pitcher, trying him as a hitter. He's not a top 30 guy. That was also the draft. I don't know if you remember. Even at the time, they drafted right-handed pitchers. In every round from round 1 through 12, with the exception of two outfielders, Mel Rojas Jr. and Dan Grovod. They, there's, it's just that, that was a bad draft at the time. I remember thinking, I don't care how your board lines up. I don't think I'd ever seen anything where a team just took the players at the same position over and over and over again. Every pick from rounds 4 to 10 was right-handed pitch. I just remember the time just being... Uh, it, it just stunned me that that was their approach. They didn't sign several of them. They, in the first 15, 16 rounds, they had three, four position players they signed. And Mel Rojas Jr., who was not good at the time and was a project at the time, is still a project. And so those two drafts are kind of lost. And we've talked about the Rays, J.J., about how we, uh, we'll write about this a little bit more, I think, later, but just how, because we're still reporting it, but from 2008 on, they haven't drafted and developed a big leaguer yet. Every young player on their team, like a guy like Matt Moore, who's their big rookie this year, he was drafted in 2007. They have not had a player from their drafts from 2008 on reach the big leagues yet. 
The Pirates have had some, but boy, it's, it's awfully small returns for the Pirates as well. Now, Brock Holt got to the big leagues pretty quick, but that's not who you really want to, I think, peg these things to. Right. And so, that, so that's the thing. When you have, when you're a lower-revenue team, to me, when you're a lower-revenue team like the Rays and like the Pirates, you just have so much less margin for error, and you can't blow two drafts in a row. You could blow one. Everyone can blow one. That happens. When you blow two in a row, boy, that hurts. So right. 2010, that whole draft right now is well, pretty much on Jameis and Tyone's Canadian shoulders. And and the thing with that is is that the Pirates' approach makes it more likely that they are going to – I mean, they're more likely to blow a draft than some other smaller revenue teams because their approach is a high-risk, high-feeling approach. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, because, I, again, I, I'm You're working right. on the Reds list right now. The Reds pretty much never blow their first-round pick. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. But the last – let's take Nick Travieso out of this right now because okay. he, just, he hasn't – he basically hadn't pitched yet. Right. But, and if you want to say Robert Stevenson, too soon to know, you know, anything about him. But early returns are Early returns good on are Robert very Stevenson. promising. Yeah. He's going to be a top-100 guy. I'll put it that way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, okay, but so 2010, 2004 to 2010, every Reds first-round pick – has already reached the big leagues. Yeah, it's a good it's a good list. It's uh, Homer Bailey, Jay Bruce, Drew Stubbs, Devin Mesoraco, Yonder Alonso, Mike Lee, Kazmani Grandal. It's a good every, list. Every one of those guys, there's no one on that list you say, man, they just whiffed on that guy. Takes me back to Chris Buckley when he was in part of uh, what they did in Toronto where they had a streak where Miguel Negron in 1999 is like the only first-round pick the Blue Jays drafted from like the late 80s through like – 2004, 2005, that did not reach the major leagues. It's a long streak. And, and what I'm saying is, so is Chris that has been associated with a lot of successful first-round picks. But the thing that stands out, though, is, is that the Reds is not as high ceiling a approach generally as the Pirates is. But it's also a much safer approach, and so they don't have drafts that, that you know, you go, ooh, that draft just... Yeah, the riskiest pick in all those by far is Devin Mesoraco, because you're talking about a Northeast high school catcher, and the track right. record of high school catchers in the first round is brutal, frankly, Especially, historically. Yeah. And Devin Masaraka didn't have a great rookie year, but catching is hard. I think we still have confidence in him being better in 2013. Right. But, but yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty impressive list. Actually, their 2003 also made the major leagues. Ryan Wagner. Yeah, he made the major leagues, but I, I think you can say when you're top 10 pick and you, I think, basically have 150 innings before you're done. You right. He was the fastest member from the 2003 yeah. draft to get to the big leagues. That was a little bit different. Different deal, but uh, but yeah, the Pirates don't have that. They don't have that history. They don't have that success. That so that, that's those but are the, they, those are stories. If you haven't read them, they're worth reading. It and they do have. Hey, they have had some hits. Andrew McCutcheon. They need franchise players. Andrew yeah. McCutcheon is a franchise player. They acquired him first round, high school outfielder. Same He's a tremendous just, player. What a fun player to watch. Right. He's so much fun. For him, I want the Pirates to be good because he is worth the price of admission. Pedro Alvarez, not a bust. I don't think he's been what they thought he would be, but say but he a, had a better 2012 than, say, Eric Hosmer, the guy that right. I and, always link it. With, and another thing with that him. is if that was a low-risk pick. Oh, no doubt. That was a consensus college guy. If that guy doesn't work out, you can you can throw criticism if you want their way at the same time. That was no one when they picked him. People were going, wow, what a bad pick. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guy did hit 30 home runs last year, so uh, yeah. he's definitely not a bust. He struck out 180 times, so he's a slightly thicker Curtis Granderson. <laughs> Less home runs. I think he'd hit 40 home runs if he was in uh, 
Yankee Stadium as well. But uh, that's a fun discussion on the Hoka. On the Pirates is a fun discussion as a whole. It's a fun well, organization. Let's go to the questions. Let's do it. Let's uh, let's go start off with former BA intern Tim Ednoff. Why don't we do that? Uh, Timmy's out in Southern California. Asks, is there anything to the recent trend of hiring two batting coaches? More formality? There's something already in practice? And I wanted to ask that to you because the Royals are the organization that's recently done this, and you do the Royals' top 30. How are they pitching this at the big league level? I I can see – okay, I'm, I'm trying not to be wishy-washy here, but let me first give you the arguments for and against. The arguments for are that one hitting coach at times – Gets a, you know, there's only one guy to go around. Well, could be overwhelmed. Yeah. You could be overwhelmed because if you, there's only so many hours. You basically have, you can show up early, but there's only so many hours that you have to work in the cage and all before games. Because right. really, the reality is, is that a hitting coach is not that you're not doing stuff during the game, but the majority of your big work is going to be done pre-game. Right. Working on things, you know, on the side work and all, where you're working on, you know, okay, well, let's go, let's go inside to the indoor cage, and let's work on this a little bit. Yep. That kind of thing. Having two guys basically doubles the, you know, <laughs> doubles the amount of guys you can have working on something. Hey, you're right. going to be working on that with him in the cage. You know, I'm going to be out here doing this, you know, working on the swing with someone else. That's the pro. The con is you better have two guys who. Actually, I'll give one other pro first. The other pro is is that. Hitting coach and hitter is a very much the personalities and all do play a part in that because sure. you're a psychologist also in part of the hitting coach. Yep. And maybe by having two guys, some guys relate better to, to one guy, some guys relate better to another. That's another advantage. The disadvantage is, is you better have two guys who are very much on the same page. Absolutely. Because hitting coaches, good hitting coaches usually have some pretty strong convictions about things. Your real danger here is, is if you have two guys who have strong convictions and they're, what they're seeing are two different things, then unless you basically divide it up and say, you got these guys, you got these guys, right? you've got a real danger of screwing guys up because, well, I'm, you know, he, you're telling me I'm dropping my elbow and that's my problem, and, and he's saying that my problem is that my base is not oh, they're, right. They'll probably both see the same problem, but they're gonna have, they may have completely different right. solutions. You know what? Well, let's, you're, you're a little too noisy in your setup, and the other guy's saying, you know, well, yep. we, we got to open you up a little bit. Yep. Well, it may be starting from the same problem. You're having trouble, you know, handling something inside, you know, heat inside or something. But if you're getting two different answers. You may have some troubles there. So really, yeah. you got to stay on that. They've got to work together very well. Yeah, I really wonder about it because I do think they can definitely have too many cooks. But to me, this is just part of a sports-wide trend. They're just more coaches, period. I mean, how many more coaches? I'm going to ask you a Steelers-centric question. JJ's a Steelers expert. In the mid-'70s, how many assistant coaches did Chuck Knoll have? It, half what they have now. Yeah, I mean – and then you look at the – you watch an NBA there's a, game. There's an NFL team now, I believe, I can't remember who it is, who has 20 uh, assistant coaches. Yeah. They have 53 players. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. If you watch an, an NBA game, sometimes there's six assistant coaches and 13 players suited up or 12 players. I mean, it, but, it, could, it could be crazy. So, at baseball, there's still is a much smaller coach-to-player ratio. So, uh, to me, I can see it as a natural evolution if teams have more money and they have so much invested in the players, they and want to provide more help. I do think there's a danger to it. I, I encourage it. I, think, I don't think it's bad. I think it's good for player development at the major league level. That continues at the major league level, and Lord knows the Royals need to develop their players more. So it makes sense. But I do think there are, it's fraught with 
the peril that you mentioned. But I, and where it really comes down to also the this is an extremely inexpensive way to if you think Good you're going to bump from it, an extra hitting coach. That's that's pocket change for MLB teams at this point. The same thing we've seen now, we're seeing, which I we I think we both agree is a great idea is. We're seeing more coaches at the minor league level, and that is a great idea. I mean, there's no, to, it's bad. You know, now again, go back. If you're saying, hey, you know, I'm going to a minor league game and it's 1982. Yeah, you have manager and maybe you have a pitching coach, but maybe right. not. You might just have a manager. Your manager does it all. Right, and that was stupid. Yeah, it was stupid. I love talking to. I love the story of Tim Corbin, now the coach of Vanderbilt, talking about his first head coaching job when he was at uh, Division Two Presbyterian. And he was hey, that's where only, my, uh, my dad grew up in Clinton, South Carolina. There you go. Well, he, w- he was not just the only coach on the staff. He was also his own groundskeeper. He did it all. And he also made, did all the laundry, and he made all the tr- uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when they went on the road. He did get the goober, all of so you it. Can, you know, that's it. He, he talked about the goober grape. He did all of it. So it's obviously a little bit apples and oranges talking about but, college. But, but, but no, yes. But, but that is the thing. Is like You see this now at the minor level where there are teams who have an additional pitching coach. Yeah, the Yankees, I'm pretty sure this year, went to four coaches for all their minor league teams. Which so is smart because... Manager and three coaches, I mean, I mean to which, say. Which I really think is smart. I agree. Because, for one, if you are... If in 2012, if you don't have at least one coach at each stop who's bilingual, you're, you're screwing up. Absolutely. I, I really think there that... There are very few organizations where they don't need... Uh, bilingual coaches, and I, I completely agree with you. And, and that's so that's you know, and more likely to to have a bilingual coach when you have four as opposed to as three. Three, and, and I think so. That's one thing. But the other is is that you're talking when, when you're down at the rookie levels, like if you go to an Affy League game, it, the first thing that always stands out is there are a lot of players. Yeah, here. exactly. They're like 35 guys crammed into those tiny little dugouts, and it's like. And you need more coaches with that if you want to, because this is especially, you're talking about levels where individual instruction is so important. Well, have more coaches to give that individual instruction. Yeah, no, I, I, so I think we think it's a good thing. Let's uh, go take some more of these questions and then wrap up and get to our interview with Kyle Simon. Roger Munter, big Giants fan, asks, uh, Eastern League and Cal League lists and chats mention down years for pitchers. Is this a minors league, minors wide phenomenon on a broad scale? Roger, I think just in turn from for me, talent was just down. Period in the minor leagues this year, but I thought that the pitching was actually pretty good. It just seemed like it was concentrated in some other leagues. Um, I'm thinking like the PCL, the Southern League. Southern League was loaded uh, with talent. So I think it just really depends. I think these things are all cyclical, and you know where the organizations have it. I do think overall talent in the minors is down compared to say a couple past a couple years ago or three years ago. But part of the reason for that is how much good young talent there is in the major leagues. Um, so I, again, who, who I think come up very quickly in some cases. Right, absolutely. I mean, I, I think these things do go in cycles. But the, the other thing with that is, is I, the overall, like if you said ready, big league ready talent, I think I'd agree if he was down compared to what it was the last couple of years. At the same time, I do think that right now there are more hard throwers in the minors than we've ever seen. I think I would agree with that. I think There's that's more velo. That's a whole different issue of pitching. I think that you know teams are. I, I do the Twins top 30. I did their draft report card. The Twins drafted, it seemed like, 15 uh, college relievers. And they did, like, five high last year. And the, you just seem like you draft a lot more. I think it's part of the showcase culture. A lot more pitchers. Pitch to the radar gun. Try to throw hard. Uh, 
don't learn to pitch. They learn to throw, and they're a lot. Maybe they throw more innings, but they're a little bit more raw when they get to professional baseball than they used to be because their accent is on velocity, not on command, not on getting people out. And that's, you know, that. That's a bigger discussion. Uh, but I don't think pitching is down necessarily in the minor leagues. I think overall talent was a smidge down. Brian, don't call me Phil Coke, asks uh, two Padres-related questions. Who do you expect the Padres to protect from the Rule 5 draft? And are they still a top-10 farm system with the promotions of Alonzo, Grandal, Ed Ketera, and then all their injuries? Uh, J.J., are they still a top-10 farm system? My gut feel is no. I'd say no, too. And I, I think I think if you said, like, last year – not that we weren't high on the Padres, but I think we were a little more guarded about the Padres than maybe, you know, yes. some, some other, you know, I agree. prognosticators we, out there in that from the standpoint of we saw good depth, but there was a little bit more, I think that we had some concerns about, okay, so how many of these guys are really impact guys? And, you know, some of those guys are now up. I mean, Alonzo, Grandal, you know, those guys like that, and, some of the, as he said, some of the guys got hurt. Robbie. Yeah, we Irwin. had him third. I mean, we had him high, yeah. but we didn't have him number one. one, which I think a couple other people did. And uh, you know, Reimer Liriano, good year. Uh, Corey Spangenberg, not so much. Some good years for some of their lower level guys. Uh, you know, the the Austin Hedges and the uh, some of those guys. But that's, this is an organization that we talk about. Joe Ross lost. did not take a big step forward. Yeah, he he was good, but he wasn't great. I mean, he 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 has flashes. But you want to talk about teams that. Have some holes in their farm system from from drafts. Uh, you talk about and also Rule Five protection. Two thousand eight and two thousand nine. The, the rough the thumbnail sketch for Rule Five protection this year is two thousand eight high school guys, two thousand nine college guys. With few exceptions from the yeah. draft, there are exceptions. But the only high school guy who really fits that for the uh, Padres is Jeff Decker. Jeff, don't call me Jeff Decker. And he did not have a a big year this year. And then you're looking at their 2009, and they went in the other direction. They went a lot more high school. So the college guys, you know, really Nate Fryman, Jerry Sullivan, these are kind of their 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 big decision guys. Jorge Reyes, I suppose. I, the best way Matt Lawless. The, the best way I can put it, I guess, is that there's no one you see on their list that you say, and, you know, Jeff Decker's really probably, and Nate Fryman are probably the two biggest decisions they have to make. Yeah. None of these are guys other where you look at it, your boy, and you, you say, "Wow, that's a really tough shot, tough choice." I'd really hate to lose that guy. You know, <laughs> none of these players. Now, Matt Lawless is ranked high in the top ten. I know he's a Matt uh, Matt Eddie fave, but none of these guys. I don't think this is a year where they have really uh, agonizing choices. And then, of course, Matt Lawless had had the year that he had this year. I didn't realize he went one in thirteen. <laughs> I knew it was a bad year. I've spoken with Matt about him. I didn't realize it was a one in thirteen year. I didn't realize it was a a year where his walk rate's over four. So, you know, you want to try to rule five that guy. Be our guest. Uh, that's kind of where I go. What, what else we have, JJ, on the question front? Uh, okay, so we've also got it here from uh, Tov Kalon, T O V K A L O N, asking, "Does Tyler Austin look like a starting outfielder? Uh, may he help the Yankees in the near future?" That was the biggest decision in the Yankees top ten that I just finished. Um, you know, they really have these four prospects in A-ball, three of whom they promoted together basically this year, Mason Williams, Gary Sanchez, Tyler Austin, plus their Slade Heathcott. So all four of these guys played in Tampa. You had them all in the Florida State League. Mason Williams didn't qualify. But I think in the leagues where we had three multiple Yankees, Tyler Austin was at the front of all of them. 
Um, but I did not have him at the front of that list. Um, Which I can understand. You know, and it's a tough. Uh, to me, the consensus seemed to be that he had the lower ceiling, but the higher floor than all these other guys. To me, Tyler Austin um, fits in as, a, as an everyday regular. I do think he's a future regular. I think the question is how much impact. Is this a 20 home run guy? Is a 25 home run guy? Is he a 15 home run guy? I don't think anyone sees him as a 30 home run guy. Right. The range is somewhere from 15 to 20, to 20 to 25. And those years where he's 15 to 20, you know, you're basically describing kind of a right-handed Nick Markakis. You're talking about a good player, but not a impactful all-star player. And I, you're looking I at 20 to 25, then you're talking about a profile right fielder. And, and that's and that's really the question. And it is. It's very difficult when you're talking about a guy who is, you know, who's really an A-ball still. Right. Did um, finish the year in Double A, but yeah, I mean, he'll probably start next year in Trenton. But so will Ramon Flores, who's another prospect they like. So will Slade Heathcott. And then right behind them will be Mason Williams. And as soon as Mason Williams masters Tampa, he's going up to double-A somewhere. Maybe Ramon Flores goes back to first base, which he's played you know, in the past. So it's or or it, Ramon Flores hopes this is maybe by then he's ready for triple-A. That's possible. Or maybe Tyler Austin goes to first base. Because Tyler Austin, I talked to a couple people in the organization who think that Tyler Austin, while he's a solid right fielder, could be a very good first baseman, even though the arm strength is above average. If I'm Tyler Austin, I'm sure hoping they're not putting me at first base because if they put me at first base, your your options then are uh, trade bait, hang out in the uh, you know AAA for a long time, or uh, or DH. Well, the thing is, it's not like Mark Teixeira, while he's signed for a long time, he's not. It's not like he's very good anymore. <laughs> he's he's a 250 hitter. He's a slightly higher average, lower home run version of Curtis Granderson. The Yankees have some. They have some serious issues as far as those things go because even though they scored a ton of runs this year, there's some downward trends for a lot of those uh, players. A lot of downward trends. So, um, so I, you know, the consensus in the Yankees organization last year was that Tyler Austin could play the outfield but was better suited to first base. I still think that the consensus is that he is better in the outfield than they thought, but I think he could be really good at first base. So, um, and, and they have a crowded outfield. So the, we just mentioned those four guys. Plus, they have a young big leaguer in Brett Gardner, who's their only young big leaguer, really, now that Cano is 30. And they have Granderson. So, it, uh, you know, I know he had a terrible postseason and he hit 230, but he did hit 40-plus home runs for the second straight year. Out, they've already come out and said, yep. you know, how many center fielders hit 40 home runs a year? So Not very many. Not very many. And the other wild card in all this is McKiltadek Mesa. I, I mean, I don't think Melky Mesa is a regular, but, but he is a wild card. He got a lot better this year. Uh, Juan Dominguez also asked JJ a couple questions for, for Winter Ball. Juan uh, uh, is in Venezuela and uh, has actually written a story for us in the past. He wants to know what Joe Ortiz's problem is. He said he's been very erratic, nasty slider, outstanding sinker at times, superb control. This is the five foot seven left-hander no, of the Rangers we organization, and that's why I brought it up. We just talked about him today in regard to the Rangers top thirty. He's on the cusp of making the Rangers top thirty, and he kind of fascinated us last year in the South Atlantic League and the Florida State League. He just is this, is this guy the next Tim Collins? What are the, what are the, I'm saying that because they're both 5'7 and left-handed. I'd say no. Or is he the next Danny Ray Herrera? No. Okay. He's a hybrid not, of the two? He's, he's in between. Cause okay. I don't think his, I mean, because, well, that's a pretty, I mean, those, those guys are both short. And left-handed. And left-handed. Otherwise, they're not alike at all. But and they're human. Yeah. <laughs> they, they both, you know, they both sleep, they both eat, they, you know, do, but, yeah, I mean, Tim Collins is, this really small guy who throws heat, and that's really kind of his calling card. Is, is he's always generated a lot of strikeouts. He's right. 
Daniel Ray Herrera is really small, and he always has had the thing. He's had this, you know, change up off a change up change off a change, change up. up. Yeah, it's like okay, so you're ready looking for my change up. Well, I'm going to do my change up, change up. It's too slow for you to be ready for my change up. Okay, now I'm going to sneak my fastball by you. Now change up, change up, change up. So I don't think Joe Ortiz is that or that. I think he's more of he's the kind of guy who you know I think he could be a useful left on left option you know in in small doses but but I don't see him I I don't see him ever having a a bigger role than that for the Rangers. I agree and that's a, that's a tough organization to make the top 30 in but it is. He's given it, he's given it a whirl and uh at that at any height that's a, that's still uh, one of the deeper top 30. Johan Jan is not giving did not make a pitch for that this year and one of my Favorite Rule Five sleepers last year. Who he's, he's turned into a uh, the Latin American version of Danny Farquhar. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they have lots of arm slots and uh, not a lot of strikes coming out of those. Uh, interesting stuff. But uh, I just wanted to say Farquhar. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's face it. Anything else, JJ? I think I'm I ready think, to go. I think it's ready to listen to Kyle Simon. We're going to move on to Kyle Simon. If you have questions for us, as always, you can send it to us at podcast at baseballamerica.com. You can tweet them at us at jjcoop36. At John Manuel BA. And if you have suggestions for who you'd like us to try to interview, uh, as we try to keep these uh, prospect interviews going, let us know uh, at those email addresses or Twitter, uh, Twitter handles. Uh, now listen to Kyle, and uh, we'll sign off for this part of the podcast. We had Cody Decker of UCLA fame on the show a couple of weeks ago now in the Padres organization, so we're going to keep it in the Pac-12 family with our second player guest, and that's Kyle Simon. Now, the Phillies organization, but formerly of the University of Arizona, Kyle joins us from the Arizona Fall League. Kyle, how's it going today? Pretty good. How are you doing, John? I'm good, and I think we both stayed up probably a little bit later than we needed to last night to uh, watch the World Series, but that was entertaining. Um, but I wanted to start off talking to you about the College World Series because your alma mater won the College World Series this year, uh, University of Arizona Wildcats' first national title since 1986. Uh, you play with some of those guys. I believe your junior year would have been the freshman year for the the Mejias, the Mejias Breens, the Kurt Hayers, all those kind of guys. What was uh, that like uh, from afar? How much did you follow that team, and what was it like, kind of being uh, being an alum and someone who played in the program, watching guys that you know win a national title like that? I mean, I was actually drafted the year before, so they're uh, they're all sophomores okay. <laughs> when I was playing. Uh, but it was. Yeah, it was it was special to see. I mean, those guys definitely earned it. Um, them coming into the program, they uh, definitely had an impact on everything. And uh, to watch them play on TV is pretty pretty sweet. I mean, proud of those guys. I mean, definitely envious. But um, I mean, the rate I'm going in my baseball career, I uh, would rather. I mean, I can't I can't make any have any regrets. So. Uh, Right. I'm pretty excited for them, but um, I'm pretty excited for myself also. Yeah, that's what, that's what confused me. I mean, uh, first year uh, in pro ball and traded uh, for a future Hall of Famer in Jim Tomey. Yeah. And then uh, already finishing the year in double-A, uh, kind of a whirlwind, I guess, uh, for you this year. Uh, how many, what would you wear, two or three different uniforms this year? Now in the fall league, probably four. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I've been in uh, about three or four different leagues now and um it's a totally uh it's like a kind of a culture shock i mean i've i'm not used to it but i mean i'm i'm getting used to it and it's it's just the game i love so i'm i'm really excited to play and uh 
especially getting traded. I mean, it was just a better opportunity for me because I kind of was uh, slumping a little bit with the Orioles, and I got picked up in that trade, and I've kind of turned it around, done a whole 360 coming out of the pen and uh, doing good for the Phillies. So I'm just excited to go to work for them. Yeah, you started the year in Frederick, then Clearwater and Reading after the trade, and like you said, switched from uh, rotation to the bullpen. Uh, I I think it's a a generic question. I'm sure you've been asked about it a lot, but uh, for you, that change, I mean, obviously it changes your mindset, but did you change your repertoire at all when you went to the bullpen? Did you focus? Did you kind of go from maybe four pitches to two or three? um, I mean, it's definitely a mindset with the whole starting role. I never understood it i mean in college i really uh flourished and did it well but once i came to pro ball it was kind of a different story because you had to pitch every fifth day my arm really wasn't ready for it kind of thing and um coming out of 10 i just love it get to hang out in the bullpen the whole game and uh tell jokes and hang out with all the guys and then uh eighth eighth or ninth inning comes around and then you're in the game and it's kind of the clutch situation so your adrenaline's pumping and you get to come and it's with starting you kind of have to uh hold back a lot of things because i mean you have to you have to get through about the fifth or sixth inning with with relieving i kind of just come in just throw my hardest and then i'm out in a matter of two or three innings so i enjoy relieving a lot more and um yeah, with the pitches, you don't have to, I mean, you can come at them with everything rather than having to start them off with a fastball and then the second time through the lineup, throw in your slider and change up. So it's, it's definitely a fit for me. Yeah, and, it's, and we're tying it into the World Series. I mean, we just saw in game one last night you know, a guy like Tim Lincecum, again, keep it in the Pac-12, but a guy like <laughs> Tim Lincecum who um, you know, won a couple of Cy Young Awards and led the major leagues in strikeouts. Obviously struggled a little bit this year, but now in the, in the postseason in the bullpen, you can kind of see with him what you're talking about. I mean, do you watch that as a pitcher uh, when you're watching a game like that? Do you watch the pitchers more? And what, could you see that really with Winsicum the way he attacked out of the bullpen last night? Just seem like he's freer and easier just pitching out of the bullpen. I mean, I mean, it seems like I watch more baseball than I actually play. I mean, <laughs> I play I play a lot of baseball and I watch quite a bit of baseball. It's kind of like a, our homework, I guess. Because, uh, I mean, critiquing these guys, we're going to be playing with them in the next few years. So you kind of get got to get an understanding of how to pitch to them, how to how to do all that. And if you're uh, behind on that, you're going to you're going to get hit around a little bit, especially in the pros. I like that idea of uh, kind of using it as homework. One, one of the stories we're actually working on, uh, you know, right now in the office, we just just finished uh, putting it in the magazine was about the, the Tro- Detroit Tigers, you know, when they had their this layoff between I'm sure you read about it. Yeah, yeah, with professional the, league team up to, to the yeah. big league park, and I, I uh, direct message and email with a couple of those players. They talked about kind of what you're talking about. Uh, was Jeff McVaney, who was a first baseman out of Texas State, who just yeah. told me, yeah, I mean, you know, the main thing I got out of it was watching those guys be pros, watching, yeah. just watching the way they comport themselves. Uh, I don't know if there are any guys in your uh, like on your fall league team who kind of fit that same boat. Guys have been in the big leagues. And, but have you noticed that as a difference, uh, whether it was in spring training or in the fall league? Because it really seems like that's one of the things that struck these instructional league guys was um, the, the preparation level was a little bit different for the big leaguers than maybe they were used to. Yeah, I think the best uh, experience I got this year was uh, when I was in Clearwater about right after the trade. Um, Roy Halladay had a spot start 
after his rehab and watching him go out about his business before that. And then he, uh, then he bought us filet mignon after, which was pretty, <laughs> pretty ridiculous. But, um, I mean, just, just watching him be him. And then, uh, I mean, after he, uh, got out, he came back, finished a little bullpen and then he shook everybody's hand in the bullpen, said, good luck this year. I mean, he just, the total professional and I'm pretty excited to play with him hopefully in this upcoming year. Yeah. I mean, his, uh, reading Dirk Hayhurst's book, uh, Roy Halladay's preparation is legendary. I mean, that's kind of what's made him uh, Roy Halladay. We're talking with Kyle Simon of the Philadelphia Phillies organization. Kyle was traded this year from the Orioles to the uh, Phillies. Let me ask you a couple things about uh, the, more things about this this season. Um, you started off at Frederick. You just mentioned Roy Halladay. I want to ask about a couple other players. Um, now, I, so you're in the Orioles organization. You got to see some Dylan Bundy up close, and I guess you got to yeah. play with Manny Machado. I just was writing about. Uh, Yankees top ten, and this guy Mark Montgomery, who's a closer. I think he's out in the fall league. Uh, yeah. On the cusp of the Yankees top ten, he gave up one home run. He's given up one home run in pro ball over the Manny Machado on a night when Machado hit for the cycle. Um, yeah. I mean, we all got to see Machado again. You watch a lot of baseball. I guess you probably weren't surprised at all to see what he did in the big leagues and and, and how different uh, of a pitcher and when he showed up as a teenager in Frederick. How different. Was Dylan Bundy, or was he not really that different? Was he just a very good player? I, what, from a player perspective, how different those guys are. Yeah, I've never seen such a polished high school guy. Because, I mean, me coming out of high school, I really had no idea. I mean, I knew going to college was going to be my best bet if I wanted to further my career in baseball, yeah. especially with especially with Andy Lopez coaching. But, um, I mean, this guy, <laughs> I've never seen a guy like him. He's basically fully well-rounded, knows how to attack hitters, has the stuff to be in the big leagues right now. I mean, he already is, but, I mean, he's he's a phenom. Like, yeah. he's a, like I, him throwing, him doing his workouts, the guy has a bigger uh, bigger legs than I have a waist kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, the, the guy's pretty incredible work ethic just in terms of, I mean, a good guy in general, he kind of hasn't, I mean, he hasn't necessarily grown up. He's only like a 19-year-old kid. But, I mean, it's soon going to hit him that he's just a superstar. But, I mean, he's he's got the right head on his shoulders. I mean, he's 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 going to be a he's going to be hopefully a Hall of Famer. I mean, the guy's the guy's incredible to watch and to see fire flames come out of a 5'11 body. It's pretty special. Yeah, I'm glad to hear he's worthy of the hype. But did you did you yeah. play with, uh, with with Machado at all, or maybe just an instructs last year? No, he, he, yeah, just an instructs. He was in, uh, he was in double once he started the year, so I was, I was still on high. Well, that, but, the guy um, that you played with this year that, uh, beyond Bundy that had the most special year was Darren Ruff. Oh, yeah. Great. Now you finished in Reading and you dealt, I want to talk to you about, uh, about uh, kind of being a sinker ball and the ground ball rate that you had this year, but, but Darren Ruff, there's a guy who it didn't seem like sinkers, four seamers, it didn't seem like it mattered. You ever seen a guy that locked in like Darren Ruff was? I actually had a because they made Babe Ruff shirts. Yeah, I had a shirt, I had a shirt hanging up in my room. But um, <laughs> he uh, once I got moved up to Double A, and uh, it was right before August. So I mean, that was right before the month. He had about 20 home runs, so it yep. felt like every every game he was hitting a home run. But I mean, he was my roommate, same type of guy, just super laid back in the Midwest. I mean, he was just a special guy to watch, and um, 
it's fun to be around, especially in the in the playoffs and everything. But I mean, just a good guy in general. Um, I mean, he's tearing it up in the Venezuelan, I think, or the one of those leagues down uh, down south. But just just a super uh, one of those guys you you wanna you wanna pitch for and you wanna play for. Because just an all around good guy. <clears throat> Excuse me. It sounded like it really was the the thing about him was like you said you mentioned the the t-shirt you had hanging up. Yeah. It really seemed like. Uh, with a crazy ostrich guy, all those kind of things. Reading is already kind of a fun place to play. But it seemed yeah, like the, he, the team embraced it, the franchise embraced it, the fans. It seemed like that was just a fun, had to be a fun month. And also, I'd imagine a fun month for you because, again, you were really thriving in that role. I think you only had one or two, well, really two outings the whole month of August where you, you gave up a run. So yeah. was that one of the more fun months of baseball for you, especially as a professional? Yeah, I mean, making playoffs with that team, too. I mean, Came down to the last game, but at the same time, it was definitely fun to pop champagne in, in uh, Portland, Maine, and destroy their locker room and everything. So, I mean, it was a, it was a, good, it was a good time. That's, but, that's always the worst hope. I, the worst fear, I think, of uh, home teams is yeah. have a visiting team clinch because just from a minor league standpoint, those minor league teams, they got to pay all that money to repair, repair yeah. the clubhouse you guys rule, but it sounds like a fun time. Oh, yeah, we definitely did some damage, but it was good. <laughs> Um, well, I want to talk to you about, about you as a player. I mean, that your reputation has always been, you know, we've written about you in college, pro ball, sinking the baseball. Uh, your career ground ball flyout ratio, according to our numbers, is close to five ground as her for every flyout. Um, yeah. For you, is it a matter of uh, have you always been able to sink the baseball? Kind of where did that, uh, yeah. where did that develop for you in, in your career, and what do you attribute that ability to? Um. <laughs> I was actually throwing a bullpen my junior year in high school, and um, my one of my assistant coaches who coaches for Paramount High School in Southern California now, he uh, he kind of showed me the grip of the two seam that I still throw today, and he said just throw this, and I threw that one pitch, and it moved about three foot three feet. So uh, decided to stick with that the rest of my career, and I mean I've been throwing nothing but a two-seam fastball because of my arm angle and everything. It just creates a lot of movement and downward uh, torque that guys really can't hit in the air. So, I mean, it's helped out quite a bit. It's, it's a little bit different out here in Arizona because the air is dry. Like, I had to deal with it in, um, in uh, college and everything. But once you move to the East Coast with humidity, it moves about, seems like, a foot or two more and just pretty unhittable to hit. So, so playing on the East, so getting drafted, even though you're a, 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 an L.A., a SoCal guy, uh, yeah. born in Long Beach, so even though you're a SoCal guy, going to the East Coast is probably a good thing for your career, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, coming, <laughs> you kind of take it as uh, you got a 50-50 chance to be either be in Arizona or Florida the first time around, and I got the lucky side of being in Florida, and then uh, getting <laughs> traded, same thing, and boom, another Florida team, so... I mean, there's no distractions over there, which is nice. I mean, I'm not too familiar with people over there. and I know some buddies here and there, but at the same time, if I was going to be in the California League, it would be somewhat of a distraction to be out there and all my buddies be around and right. have a lot of people come to the games and stuff. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but at the same time, it's, it's more focused out on, in Florida. I can get my work done. Well, the Fall League always sounded like, you mentioned distractions. The Fall League sounds like it always can be a distraction. I mean, uh, you went to college yeah. in Tucson, which is a little bit down the road, obviously, from, from Phoenix. But, I mean, 
what does the folly compare to in terms of that kind of off-field or that uh, kind of distraction? Is it kind of like a Cape or a summer college league as far as that baseball? What's it like for you? I would describe it as Cape. I mean, it's just a bunch of the most elite players. Um, I mean, we don't really have agendas other than having a game at 12 every day, getting down around 4, and then we have from 4 till the next day to do whatever we want. I mean, being in Peoria, it's kind of a ways to Scottsdale and Mill Avenue, but at the same, where all the, that's like the hot spots. Sure. But, um, but uh, I mean, we still have our fun. I mean, we, we, we tend to have a lot of barbecues at our house and um, for NFL Sunday, and we have Sundays off, so that's even better, too. But, I mean, it's just more of a, it's the most relaxed league I've ever played in, especially with the talent that everyone has, because, I mean, everyone's coming off a five-month season and kind of just gearing down for off-season. So, I mean, everyone wants to perform, but at the same time, everyone wants to just be healthy and uh, go into off-season just healthy and ready to recover for the next next year. So, I mean, it's it's a fun league. You get hit around (laughs) quite a bit sometimes, but, I mean, it's it's an offensive league. I mean, they told us at the get-go because of the stretch. Strike zone, strike zone's going to be small, so you're just going to have to pound the zone and let them do their thing. And luckily, with my movement, it uh, gets gets guys out a lot, except for that first outing. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to bring it up if you did. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that first yeah. outing, you didn't make out of what the first inning, but then I, uh, your third outing was at three scoreless innings. I mean, yeah. was that first outing just kind of like a, a almost a little bit of a wake-up call? Like, okay, wait a minute, this talent out here is... Yeah extreme and, and that you're going to ha- you know that you like you said that, you, that your sinker wasn't going to sink as much and then it was going to be a matter yeah. of making adjustments after that i mean that day was kind of just baseball i mean they, right. they had some breaks and um i gave up some hits wasn't wasn't locating my ball like i wanted to and it was kind of the first uh live hitting i've seen in about a month since reading so i mean when you get thrown into the fire and you're thrown against the best hitters in the minor leagues it's it's sometimes tough to get an out. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I mean, it, it was a struggle, but I mean, it's kind of not how you start, it's how you uh, finish. So uh, hopefully, I'll finish strong, and um, I mean, that's what I did in, in uh, this season. So I mean, I'm just looking forward to the next outing on Saturday. I think it has to make every pitcher feel a little bit better about uh, about themselves. You see, Justin Verlander, probably the best pitcher in the world get hit like he got hit in game one of the World yeah. Series. If that can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And then, like you said, it's how you get back. Uh, what, what you do in reaction to that kind of uh, tells a little bit more about who you are, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, Kyle, uh, good stuff today. Appreciate you being patient with us and our technical issues. But uh, uh, enjoy talking with you and uh, finish strong out there in the Fall League uh, in the next uh, three to four weeks. Uh, look forward to following your progress. Sounds good. I appreciate it, John. Thank Have you. Kyle one. Simon of the Philadelphia Phillies organization.